Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Despite October having flushed the cinema market with scary movies, I managed to get through that month and November without seeing a single new one. I did take in One Hour Photo, which is an older Robin Williams film, which is a subtle kind of horror. In fact, you might disagree with me that it makes the cut for horror, and I wouldn't argue against you too much. But something unusual did come across my horror radar that I thought I'd mention to you. It's a video game, and you can find it on the Steam platform for PC and Mac, and it'll set you back zero dollars. Its name is Doki Doki Literature Club. Even though I do consider myself a bit of a computer gamer, this one I nearly passed over, and I'll explain why in just a moment. I do have to admit to you, though, that if you're just not a gamer, you might want to skip forward a minute or two because this is a strange find. For those of you that have used Steam to find and buy games, you'll have noticed the trend uh, for more and more, quote, visual novels, unquote. These are typically rather static graphics that are done in the Japanese anime style and seemingly are frequently done to part the lonely male gamer from their money with large anime breasts, taking the Steam marketplace to the edge of its terms and conditions. Many of them also appear to be a sort of choose-your-own-adventure with dating. Doki Doki Literature Club generated a bit of buzz for being a horror take on that genre. 
I had no interest in the game, but my wife and her friend had picked up on a bit of that same buzz and set aside an afternoon to play through it. More than a full hour into this game, I was wondering if I had made the correct decision about how to spend my time. It seemed to be a boring game about a high school boy trying to get somewhere with some high school girls, and due to it being of limited interactivity, it was even more boring to watch. However, somewhere towards minute 90 of the game, it started to get weird, and it blew my mind. It was a terrific use of the medium and the... Well, I can't really call it a slow burn since nothing was burning until the turn happened. To put it in literature terms, it's like reading through Pride and Prejudice, and only in the last third of the book finding out that Mr. Darcy is a serial killer and you only had the faintest of easy-to-miss clues in the first part of the book. If you have any interest in computer games, I'd recommend this one, and it'll be worth your money since it doesn't cost anything. And I'd recommend you playing it with no more information known about it other than what I gave you. The more blind, the better. But with all creative projects, Tales to Terrify being counted among them, if you enjoyed it, I'd also encourage you to kick the developer a couple bucks. Tonight, you'll be hearing part two of our Kafka story, but first up is a story from Liam Hogan. Liam Hogan is a London-based writer and host of the award-winning monthly literary event, Liars League, winner of Quantum Shorts 2015 and SciFest LA's Roswell Award 2016, his dark fantasy collection, Happy Ending Not Guaranteed, is out now from Arachne Press. Lend me your ears for Liam Hogan's Bring Rope, originally published in On the Premises, October 2016. Bring rope. I texted back a single question mark, but there was no reply. Julia lived in a converted warehouse out Docklands Way. The artists weren't supposed to live in their studios, but London rents, being London rents and artists being artists, most of them had a chaise lounge or a pull-out sofa or some other suitably bohemian arrangement. Julia and I were an on-off thing, so much so that I wondered if I should have put a winky grin after the question mark. But most likely one of her fellow artists needed some chunky piece of salvage lifted, or a completed artwork lowered. Chances were I'd not see the rope again, and I weighed this against any possible return of favour from Julia. Then I remembered I had a climbing rope I didn't exactly trust anymore, so I chucked that one in my rucksack. I was expecting Julia to buzz me in at the gate, but instead the crackly intercom voice told me, I'll come down. I twiddled my thumbs for a couple of long minutes, listening to the distorted sound of someone's radio cranked up to maximum volume, before she appeared and let me through. Jesus, Jules, I said. Have you been working late? She looked haggard, her hair a mess and her face thinner than I remembered, eyes darker. She took one step forward and buried herself in my hug before breaking off and pointing at my bag. Got the rope? she asked. I nodded and she chewed her lip. Come up, she said. I've got something to show you. All of which 
under other circumstances, might have been highly promising. But we turned off before we reached her floor, and entered darkened corridors I'd not been down before. The old tobacco warehouse had been carved up into odd-shaped rooms. Plywood passageways hacked between them in any which way, but these corridors were more permanent and less lived in. No artwork adorned the walls, no lights shone behind the scant few doors. Old newspapers and last autumn's leaves disintegrated quietly in the corners. Julia yanked on the metal door. The hinges screamed in protest, and everything I'd imagined I might be about to see disappeared. What the? The words dried up, and I just stood and stared. We were in an unconverted part of the warehouse, wide and tall. It went all the way up to the corrugated roof three floors up. In the middle of this vast open space hung a cloud, a black, featureless, utterly impossible cloud. Beneath it, a gabble of the community's artist types hung wearily onto ropes that arced upwards and vanished into the inky nothingness. Julia threaded her way between them to where a length of coarse rope lay untidily on the concrete floor. She picked up one end and threw it towards the cloud. At first, I thought she'd missed. It was a clumsy, lazy throw, but the cloud snapped up the offering and pulled the rope taut, with Julia gripping the other end. Now you, she said. I stared at her, stared at the mind-warping cloud, at the other artists, stared and slowly shook my head. Thomas, she called out, breaking the spell. I dropped my bag and hauled out the climbing rope, untying the simple knot at its heart and pulling a section free. Holding on to it with my left hand, I threw the coiled loops as hard as I could with my right, and watched as it was taken up just as eagerly as Julia's was. I tested the rope. The pull wasn't a strong one, enough to lift my arm if I let it, but not enough to make me strain. I looked around once again at the others, and then at Julia, whose eyes were now half-closed. There were a dozen people in the room, artists, who could and would chew the fat about anything, any time of day, and who were only normally this silent and still when they were stoned out of their artsy little minds. Julia, I hissed. She turned slowly towards me. What are we doing here? She blinked, looked upwards towards the hovering darkness, and gestured with her chin. Holding it down, she said. I thought about that for a while. I'm not sure how long. Time had a weird way of slipping by when you looked into the heart of that cloud. Why don't we just tie off the ropes? I suggested. She gave me a small wry grin. Try it. I eased over to the wall where there was a metal loop embedded in the brickwork. A quick figure of eight later, I turned back to the watching Julia, letting go of the rope. As I did so, it slackened, and the end suspended in the cloud dropped back to earth, bouncing off the shoulder of one of the artists who shuffled sleepily away from it. "'You need to keep hold of it,' Julia said. "'Skin on rope. Otherwise, it does that.' I untied the knot, and made ready to send the loose end back up into the cloud. 
What if I don't? I said. What if you all let go? She shrugged. Have you looked into it? Deep into it? I nodded. How does it make you feel? I looked again. Its centre was a total absence of light or form. But the peripheries... The peripheries held swirling shapes that eluded description. Tendrils of inky blackness that vanished as soon as I turned my attention on them. That gave rise to strange, dark, magical thoughts. I couldn't tell you what these thoughts contained. They were as ethereal as the half-glimpse forms. They held an odd attraction, though, like the gentle pull on my arms. The pull that kept the rope tight. The rope... I couldn't even remember having thrown again. I turned to try and explain these vague thoughts to Julia, and was surprised to see more people had arrived. Our numbers had doubled. Some were in painters' smocks, others in dressing gowns, one in just his boxers, all linked to the cloud by whatever ropes they had managed to scrounge up. Julia, I said, and her head reluctantly lifted once again from its slump position. Where did this thing come from? It must have been a full minute before she shrugged her shoulders and her glazed eyes looked at mine. I think Stefan made it. I looked to where she gestured. Most of the artists were in a rough circle, fanning out around the fringes of the cloud, around the edges of the room. But Stefan alone stood directly beneath it. Though stood wasn't quite right. The toes of his shoes dragged across the concrete. His arms spread wide as he hung from the pair of ropes, clenched in his outstretched hands. I blinked. It looked like he was being crucified. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was the unnatural stillness of all those people not talking or eating or drinking or even smoking. Maybe it was because I didn't see the same thing they did when I stared into the cloud. My eyes were closed to the artistic inspiration it offered them. Whatever it was, I wanted out. A sudden, desperate urge to be elsewhere. I felt Julia's eyes watching me, and I looked back at her, feeling small, feeling guilty. I'll call a friend to come help, shall I? She nodded, just once. Didn't smile didn't say anything, but she knew. I forced my hand to let go and watched the snake of rope fall between the artists. No one stirred. I turned, leaving my bag, leaving the rope, aware of the dark void at my back. As I walked out, I raised my mobile to my ear, though I hadn't called anyone, though there wasn't anyone I could possibly call. Outside, a surreal dawn was breaking. The clouds lit pink, and the whir of an electric milk van and a few forlorn birds, the only signs of life. With a shaking hand, I reached for a smoke, but my bag was upstairs with Julia, with the blackness. I felt drained, exhausted. The pit of my stomach was a hollow I was too weary to think about filling, but I couldn't ignore my thirst nor the sudden, urgent need for a toilet. I thought of going back into the studios, up to Julia's room. I knew where she kept the spare key. I thought of going back into that cavernous space with its empty, 
black heart and dragging Julia out of there, dragging everybody out of there. But I did none of those things. I ducked behind a dumpster to relieve myself and then got the train to the heart of the city, mingling with the early morning commuters, doing my best to blink away the darkness lingering behind my eyelids, the darkness I could see wherever I looked. I left a few messages for Julia, tried to call her once or twice, but got no reply, didn't try again. I guess I was wary of what she'd think of me for having bailed. It wasn't my fault. She must have realised that I didn't have an artistic bone in my body, must have known that I always listened carefully to what other people said before voicing any opinions on the splattered mess of their meaningless paintings, their tatty sculptures, or, worst of all, the reclaimed junk that made up their installations. She must have known that even my interest in her own dismal daubs was entirely feigned. And why? It was almost a week before I summoned up the nerve to reclaim my climbing bag. The rope I didn't care about, but the rucksack was nearly new, and it had a couple of carabiners and a belaying loop that I could ill afford to lose. The courtyard was quiet. Nobody around. Nobody around at all. I pressed the buzzer. There was no buzz, no answer, and when I pushed the gate, it opened freely, the magnetic lock inactive, the power out. The stairwell was dark. The timer switch for the lights did nothing but slowly, mechanically wind down, which was kind of creepy, but it wasn't so dark you couldn't see. It wasn't as dark as that cloud. Nothing was. It took me a while to find my way back to that gaping space. I pushed the protesting door half open, my heart pounding, and squeezed through, dreading what I was about to see. There was nothing. No cloud, no people, no climbing bag, and no ropes. No dust or cobwebs or leaves either. It looked like the place had been swept spotlessly clean. I crossed to the centre of the room, staring up at the skylit roof, peering at the walls, looking for any sign of anything at all. Two floors up, I let myself into Julia's workshop. It was cold and lifeless somehow, even though it was still full of her artwork, her clothes, her empty bottles of wine. I ran a finger over the hardened acrylic on a paintbrush, glanced into a coffee cup whose dregs had long since dried and cracked. Up the ladder, in the attic space, where she had her mattress, I picked up a T-shirt of mine, left behind from a previous visit. Or maybe she'd borrowed it after an impromptu stopover at my place. It felt damp and musty, and I let it drop where I found it. The story broke the day after. Mysterious disappearances at artist studios. Twelve missing. Twelve pictures on the double-page spread. None of whom were Julia. I kept quiet. A few of them missing turned up in the weeks afterwards. None of them had been at the studios for a while. And a lot more names were added, Julia's included. But who knows what the real tally is? As far as I know, I'm the only person who saw the cloud and hasn't vanished off to whatever hell they all went to. There's no one to talk to about it. No one to ask if they see the same black abyss when they close their eyes at night if they feel their soul slipping into its gaping maw as they try desperately to sleep. 
if they wake with the same numbing sense of loss, the same emptiness reflected back in the bathroom mirror. Except for Stefan, perhaps. I saw his photo in someone else's evening standard, assumed he was a latecomer to the roll call of the missing. But it wasn't his disappearance that got him into the papers. It was his triumphant emergence on the premier stage of art. Stefan has been commissioned to fill the turbine hall at the Tate Modern. The art world is in shock. The biggest, most exclusive space in London, given to a nobody. No track record, no Turner Prize, no previous exhibitions of any note. A fraud or a PR stunt is suspected. Rumour rife that Stefan Wilkowitz is Banksy's real name, or perhaps a pseudonym adopted for this singular work. People gather to see the huge screens behind which he labours, even though the piece isn't due to open for another week. The dearth of information just adds to the hype, just adds to the building excitement. Really, there's only one thing anyone knows about him, or his art. It's the name of his installation, and his instruction to all who eagerly await its opening. It's on the personalised invitation to the exclusive preview that dropped unexpectedly through my letterbox this morning. And it's emblazoned across the glass top of the Tate Modern for all to see, in fourteen-foot-high, dark-as-night letters. Bring rope, it says. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That was Liam Hogan's Bring Rope, as read by Alex Wineley. Alex Wineley lives in a cottage just outside Cambridge where he writes science fiction and narrates stories. 
His new fridge is bigger than the cottage itself, like a TARDIS, but containing far more calories. Alex was at Worldcon 75 this year on a board with Rob Silverberg and others talking about when science fiction gets it wrong. Thank you, Alex. And now, we return to Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. You heard part one last week, and naturally, part two will be this week. But first, a bit more about Mr. Kafka. Prior to World War I, Kafka attended several meetings of the Club Mladic, a Czech anarchist, anti-militarist, and anti-clerical organization. During the communist era, the legacy of Kafka's work for Eastern Bloc socialism was hotly debated. Opinions ranged from the notion that he had satirized the bureaucratic bungling of a crumbling Austria-Hungarian empire to the belief that he embodied the rise of socialism. A further key point was Marx's theory of alienation. While the orthodox position was that Kafka's depictions of alienation were no longer relevant for a society that had supposedly eliminated alienation, a 1963 conference held in Liblice, Czechoslovakia, on the 80th anniversary of his birth, reassessed the importance of Kafka's portrayal of bureaucracy. Whether or not Kafka was a political writer is still an issue of debate. Here comes part two of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis. Two. It was not until it was getting dark that evening that Gregor awoke from his deep and coma-like sleep. He would have awoken soon afterwards anyway, even if he hadn't been disturbed, as he had had enough sleep and felt fully rested. But he had the impression that some hurried steps and the sound of the door leading into the front room being carefully shut had woken him. The light from the electric street lamp shone palely here and there onto the ceiling and tops of the furniture. But down below, where Gregor was, it was dark. He pushed himself over to the door, feeling his way clumsily with his antennae, of which he was now beginning to learn the value, in order to see what had been happening there. The whole of his left side seemed like one painfully stretched scar, and he limped badly on his two rows of legs. One of the legs had been badly injured in the events of the morning. It was nearly a miracle that only one of them had been, and dragged along lifelessly. It was only when he reached the door that he realized what it actually was that had drawn him over to it. It was the smell of something to eat. By the door... There was a dish filled with sweet milk and little pieces of white bread floating in it. He was so pleased he almost laughed, as he was even hungrier than he had been that morning, and immediately dipped his head into the milk, covering his eyes with it. But he soon drew his head back again in disappointment. Not only did the pain in his tender left side make it difficult to eat the food, he was only able to eat if his whole body worked together as a snuffling whole, but the milk did not taste at all nice. Milk like this was normally his favorite drink, and his sister had certainly left it there for him because of that. But he turned, almost against his will, away from the dish and crawled back into the center of the room. Through the crack in the door, Gregor could see that the gas had been lit in the living room. His father at this time would normally be sat with the evening paper, reading it out loud to Gregor's mother and sometimes to his sister, but there was now not a sound to be heard. Gregor's sister would often write and tell him about this reading, but maybe his father had lost the habit in recent times. It was so quiet all around, too, 
even though there must have been someone in the flat. What a quiet life it is the family lead, said Gregor to himself. And, gazing into the darkness, felt a great pride that he was able to provide a life like that in such a nice home for his sister and parents. But what now? If all this peace and wealth and comfort should come to a horrible and frightening end? That was something that Gregor did not want to think about much. So he started to move about, crawling up and down the room. Once during that long evening, the door on one side of the room was opened very slightly and hurriedly closed again. Later on, the door on the other side did the same. It seemed that someone needed to enter the room, but thought better of it. Gregor went and waited immediately by the door, resolved either to bring the timorous visitor into the room in some way, or at least to find out who it was. But the door was open no more that night, and Gregor waited in vain. The previous morning... While the doors were locked and everyone had wanted to get in there to him. But now, now that he had opened up one of the doors and the other had clearly been unlocked sometime during the day, no one came and the keys were on the other sides. It was not until late at night that the gaslight in the living room was put out and now it was easy to see that his parents and sister had stayed awake all that time as they all could be distinctly heard as they went together on tiptoe. It was clear that no one would come into Gregor's room any more until morning. That gave him plenty of time to think, undisturbed, about how he would have to rearrange his life. For some reason, the tall, empty room where he was forced to remain made him feel uneasy as he lay there flat on the floor, even though he'd been living in it for five years. Hardly aware of what he was doing other than a slight feeling of shame, he hurried under the couch. It pressed down on his back a little, and he was no longer able to lift his head, but he nonetheless felt immediately at ease, and his only regret was that his body was too broad to get it all underneath. He spent the whole night there. Some of the time he passed in a light sleep, although he frequently woke from it in alarm because of his hunger, and some of the time was spent in worries and vague hopes which, however, always led to the same conclusion. For the time being he must remain calm, he must show patience and the greatest consideration so that his family could bear the unpleasantness that he, in his present condition, was forced to impose upon them. Gregor soon had the opportunity to test the strength of his decisions, as early the next morning, almost before the night had ended, his sister, nearly fully dressed, opened the door from the front room and looked anxiously in. She did not see him straight away, but when she did notice him under the couch— he had to be somewhere, for God's sake. He couldn't have flown away. She was so shocked that she lost control of herself and slammed the door shut from the outside. But she seemed to regret her behavior as she opened the door again straight away and came in on tiptoe, as if she was entering the room of someone seriously ill, or even a stranger. Gregor had pushed his head forward right to the edge of the couch and watched her. Would she notice that he had left the milk as it was? realize that it was not from any lack of hunger and bring him some other food that was more suitable? If she didn't do it herself, he would rather go hungry than draw her attention to it, although he did feel a terrible urge to rush forward from under the couch, throw himself at his sister's feet, and beg her for something good to eat. However, his sister noticed the full dish immediately and looked at it and the few drops of milk splashed around it with some surprise. 
She immediately picked it up, using a rag, not her bare hands, and carried it out. Gregor was extremely curious as what she would bring in its place, imagining the wildest possibilities. But he never could have guessed what his sister, in her goodness, actually did bring. In order to test his taste, she brought him a whole selection of things, all spread out on an old newspaper. There were old, half-rotten vegetables, bones from the evening meal, covered in white sauce that had gone hard, a few raisins and almonds, some cheese that Gregor had declared inedible two days before, a dry roll and some bread spread with butter and salt. As well as all that, she had poured some water into the dish, which had probably been permanently set aside for Gregor's use, and placed them beside it. Then, out of consideration for Gregor's feelings, as she knew that he would not eat in front of her, she hurried out again, and even turned the key in the lock so that Gregor would know he could make things as comfortable for himself as he liked. Gregor's little legs whirled. At last he could eat. What's more, his injuries must have already completely healed as he found no difficulty in moving. This amazed him. As more than a month earlier, he had cut his finger slightly with a knife. He thought of how his finger had still hurt the day before yesterday. Am I less sensitive than I used to be then? He thought, and was already sucking greedily at the cheese which had immediately, almost compellingly, attracted him much more than the other foods on the newspaper. Quickly, one after the other, his eyes watering with pleasure, he consumed the cheese, the vegetables, and the sauce, the fresh foods, on the other hand. He didn't like it all, and even dragged the things he did want to eat a little away from them because he couldn't stand the smell. Long after he had finished eating and lay lethargic in the same place, his sister slowly turned the key in the lock as a sign to him that he should withdraw. He was immediately startled, although he had been half asleep, and he hurried back under the couch. But he needed great self-control to stay there, even for the short time that his sister was in the room as eating so much food had rounded out his body a little, and he could hardly breathe in the narrow space. Half suffocating, he watched with bulging eyes as his sister unselfconsciously took a broom and swept up the leftovers, mixing them in with the food he had not even touched at all as if it could not be used any more. She quickly dropped it into a bin, closed it with its wooden lid, and carried everything out. She had hardly turned her back before Gregor came out again from under the couch and stretched himself. This was how Gregor received his food each day now, once in the morning while his parents and the maid were still asleep, and the second time after everyone had eaten their midday meal as his parents would sleep for a little while then as well, and his sister would send the maid away on some errand. Gregor's father and mother certainly did not want him to starve either, but perhaps it would have been more than they could stand to have to have any more experience of his feeding than being told about it, and perhaps his sister wanted to spare them what distress she could, as they were indeed suffering enough. It was impossible for Gregor to find out what they had told the doctor and the locksmith that first morning to get them out of the flat. As nobody could understand him, nobody, not even his sister, thought that he could understand them, so he had to be content to hear his sister's sighs and appeals to the saints as she moved about his room. It was only later, when she had become a little more used to everything, there was, of course, no question of her ever becoming fully used to the situation, that Gregor would sometimes catch a friendly comment, 
or at least a comment that could be construed as friendly. He's enjoyed his dinner today, she might say, when he had diligently cleared away all the food left for him, or if he left most of it, which slowly became more and more frequent, she would often say, sadly, Now everything's just been left there again. Although Gregor wasn't able to hear any news directly, he did listen to much of what was said in the next rooms, and whenever he heard anyone speaking, he would scurry straight over to the appropriate door and press his whole body against it. There was seldom any conversation, especially at first, and it was not about him in some way, even if only in secret. For two whole days, all the talk at every mealtime was about what they should do now, but even between meals they spoke about the same subject as there were always at least two members of the family at home. Nobody wanted to be at home by themselves, and it was out of the question to leave the flat entirely empty. And on the very first day, the maid had fallen to her knees and begged Gregor's mother to let her go without delay. It was not very clear how much she knew of what had happened, but she left within a quarter of an hour, tearfully thanking Gregor's mother for her dismissal as if she had done her an enormous service. She even swore emphatically not to tell anyone the slightest about what had happened, even though no one had asked that of her. Now Gregor's sister had to help his mother with the cooking, although that was not so much bother as no one ate very much. Gregor often heard how one of them would unsuccessfully urge the other to eat and receive no more answer than, No thanks, I've had enough, or something similar. No one drank very much either. His sister would sometimes ask his father whether he would like a beer, hoping for the chance to go and fetch it herself. When his father would then say nothing, she would add, so that he would not feel selfish, that she could send the housekeeper for it. But then his father would close the matter with a big, loud, no, and no more would be said. Even before the first day had come to an end, his father had explained to Gregor's mother and sister what their finances and prospects were. Now and then he stood up from the table and took some receipt or document from the little cash box he had saved from his business when it had collapsed five years earlier. Gregor heard how he opened the complicated lock and then closed it again after he had taken the item he wanted. What he heard his father say was some of the first good news that Gregor had heard since he had first been incarcerated in his room. He had thought that nothing at all remained from his father's business. At least he had never told him anything different, and Gregor had never asked about it anyway. Their business misfortune had reduced the family to a state of total despair, and Gregor's only concern at that time had been to arrange things so that they could all forget about it as quickly as possible. So then he started working especially hard, with a fiery vigor that raised him from a junior salesman to the traveling representative almost overnight, bringing with it the chance to earn money in quite different ways. Gregor converted his success at work straight into cash that he could lay on the table at home for the benefit of his astonished and delighted family. They had been good times, and they had never come again, at least not with the same splendor. Even though Gregor had later earned so much that he was in a position to bear the cost of the whole family, and did bear them, they had even gotten used to it, both Gregor and the family. They took the money with gratitude, and he was glad to provide it, although there was no longer much warmth and affection given in return. Gregor only remained close to his sister now. Unlike him, 
she was very fond of music and a gifted and expressive violinist. It was his secret plan to send her to the conservatory next year, even though it would cause great expense that would have to be made up for in some other way. During Gregor's short periods in town, conversations with his sister would often turn to the conservatory, but it was only ever mentioned as a lovely dream that could never be realized. Their parents did not like to hear this innocent talk, but Gregor thought about it quite hard and decided that he would let them know what he planned with a grand announcement of it on Christmas Day. That was the sort of totally pointless thing that went through his mind in his present state, pressed upright against the door and listening. There were times when he simply became too tired to continue listening, when his head would fall wearily against the door and he would pull it up again with a start, as even the slightest noise he caused would be heard next door and they would all go silent. What's he doing now? his father would say after a while, clearly having gone over to the door, and only then would the interrupted conversation slowly be taken up again. When explaining things, his father often repeated himself several times, partly because it was a long time since he had been occupied with these matters himself, and partly because Gregor's mother did not understand everything the first time. From these repeated explanations, Gregor learned, to his pleasure, that despite all their misfortunes, there was still some money available from the old days. It was not a lot, but it had not been touched in the meantime, and some interest had accumulated. Besides that, they had not been using up all the money that Gregor had been bringing home every month, keeping only a little for himself, so that, too, had been accumulating. Behind the door, Gregor nodded with enthusiasm in his pleasure at this unexpected thrift and caution. He could have actually used this surplus money to reduce his father's debt to his boss, and that day when he could have freed himself from his job would have come much closer but now it was certainly better the way his father had done things. This money, however, was certainly not enough to enable the family to live off the interest. It was enough to maintain them for perhaps one or two years, no more. That's to say, it was money that should not really be touched but set aside for emergencies. Money to live on had to be earned. His father was healthy but old and lacking in self-confidence, during the five years that he had not been working, the first holiday in a life that had been full of strain and no success, he had put on a lot of weight and become very slow and clumsy. Would Gregor's elderly mother have to go and earn money? She suffered from asthma, and it was a strain for her just to move about the home. Every other day would be spent struggling for breath on the sofa by the window. Would his sister have to go and earn money? She was still a child of seventeen. Her life up till then had been very enviable, consisting of wearing nice clothes, sleeping late, helping out in the business, joining in with a few modest pleasures, and most of all playing the violin. Whenever they began to talk of the need to earn money, Gregor would always first let go of the door and then throw himself onto the cool leather sofa next to it as he became quite hot with shame and regret. He would often lie there the whole night through, not sleeping a wink but scratching at the leather for hours on end. Or he might go to all the effort of pushing a chair to the window, climbing up onto the sill and, propping up in the chair, leaning on the window to stare out of it. He had used to feel a great sense of freedom from doing this, 
But doing it now was obviously something more remembered than experienced, as what he actually saw in this way was becoming less distinct every day, even things that were quite near. He had used to curse the ever-present view of the hospital across the street, but now he could not see it at all. And if he had not known that he lived on the Schattenstrauss, which was a quiet street despite being in the middle of the city, he could have thought that he was looking out the window at a barren waste where the gray sky and the gray earth mingled inseparably. His observant sister only needed to notice the chair twice before she would always push it back to its exact position by the window after she tidied up the room, and even left the inner pane of the window open from now on. If Gregor had only been able to speak to his sister and thank her for all that she had to do for him, it would have been easier for him to bear it. But as it was, it caused him pain. His sister, naturally, tried as far as possible to pretend there was nothing burdensome about it, and the longer it went on, of course, the better she was able to do so. But as time went by, Gregor was also able to see through it also much better. It had become very unpleasant for him now whenever she entered the room. No sooner had she come in than she would quickly close the door as a precaution so that no one would have to suffer the view into Gregor's room. Then she would go straight to the window and pull it hurriedly open almost as if she were suffocating. Even if it was cold, she would stay at the window, breathing deeply for a little while. She would alarm Gregor twice a day with this running about and noise-making. He would stay under the couch, shivering the whole while, knowing full well that she would certainly have liked to spare him this whole ordeal, but it was impossible for her to be in the same room with him with the window closed. One day, about a month after Gregor's transformation, and when his sister no longer had any particular reason to be shocked at his appearance, she came into the room a little earlier than usual and found him still staring out the window, motionless, and just where he would be the most horrible. In itself, his sister's not coming into the room would have been no surprise for Gregor, as it would have been difficult for her to immediately open the window while he was still there. But not only did she not come in, she went straight back and closed the door behind her. A stranger would have thought he had threatened her and tried to bite her. Gregor went straight to hide himself under the couch, of course, but he had to wait until midday before his sister came back, and she seemed much more uneasy than usual. It made him realize that she still found his appearance unbearable and would continue to do so. She probably even had to overcome the urge to flee when she saw the little bit of him that protruded from under the couch. One day, in order to spare her even this sight, he spent four hours carrying the bedsheet over to the couch on his back and arranged it so that he was completely covered and his sister would not be able to see him even if she bent down. If she did not think this sheet was necessary, then all she had to do was take it off again, as it was clear enough that it was no pleasure for Gregor to cut himself off so completely. She left the sheet where it was. Gregor even thought he glimpsed a look of gratitude one time when he carefully looked out from under the sheet to see how his sister liked the new arrangement. For the first fourteen days, Gregor's parents could not bring themselves to come into the room to see him. He would often hear them say how they appreciated all the work his sister was doing, even though, before, they had seen her as a girl who was somewhat useless and frequently been annoyed with her. But now the two of them, father and mother, 
would often both wait outside the door of Gregor's room while his sister tidied up in there, and as soon as she went out again, she would have to tell them exactly how everything looked, what Gregor had eaten, how he had behaved this time, and whether, perhaps, any slight improvement could be seen. His mother also wanted to go in and visit Gregor relatively soon, but his father and sister first persuaded her against it. Gregor listened very closely to all of this and approved fully. Later, though, she had to be held back by force, which made her call out, Let me go! Let me see Gregor, my unfortunate son! Can't you understand? I have to see him! And Gregor could think to himself that maybe it would be better if his mother came in. Not every day, of course, but one day a week, perhaps. She could just understand everything much better than his sister, who, for all her courage, was still just a child after all and really might not have an adult's appreciation of the burdensome job she had taken on. Gregor's wish to see his mother was soon realized. Out of consideration for his parents, Gregor wanted to avoid being seen at the window during the day. The few square meters of floor did not give him much room to crawl about. It was hard to just lie quietly through the night. His food soon stopped giving him any pleasure at all, and so, to entertain himself, he got into the habit of crawling up and down the walls and ceiling. He was especially fond of hanging from the ceiling. It was quite different from lying on the floor. He could breathe more freely. His body had a light swing to it, and up there, relaxed and almost happy, it might happen that he would surprise even himself by letting go of the ceiling and landing on the floor with a crash. But now, of course, he had far better control of his body than before, and even with a fall as great as that, caused himself no damage. Very soon, his sister noticed Gregor's new way of entertaining himself. He had, after all, left traces of the adhesive from his feet as he crawled about, and got it into her head to make it as easy as possible for him by removing the furniture that got in his way, especially the chest of drawers and the desk. Now, this was not something she would be able to do by herself, she did not dare ask her father for help. The sixteen-year-old maid had carried on bravely since the cook had left, but she certainly would not have helped in this. She had even asked to be allowed to keep the kitchen locked at all times and never have to open the door unless it was especially important. So his sister had no choice but to choose some time when Gregor's father was not there and fetch his mother to help her. As she approached the room, Gregor could hear his mother express joy, but once at the door, she went silent. First, of course, his sister came in and looked around to see that everything in the room was all right, and only then did she let her mother enter. Gregor had hurriedly pulled the sheet down lower over the couch and put more folds into it so that everything really looked as if it had just been thrown down by chance. Gregor also refrained, this time, from spying out from under the sheet. He gave up the chance to see his mother until later and was simply glad that she had come. "'You can come in. He can't be seen,' said his sister, obviously leading her in by the hand. The old chest of drawers was too heavy for a pair of feeble women to be heaving about, but Gregor listened as they pushed it from its place, his sister always taking on the heaviest part of the work for herself and ignoring her mother's warnings that she would strain herself. This lasted a very long time. After laboring at it for fifteen minutes or more, 
His mother said it would be better to leave the chest where it was. For one thing, it was too heavy for them to get the job finished before Gregor's father got home, and leaving it in the middle of the room, it would be in his way even more. And for the other thing, she wasn't even sure that taking the furniture away would really be any help to him. She thought just the opposite. The sight of the bare walls saddened her right to her heart, and why wouldn't Gregor feel the same way about it? He'd been used to this furniture in his room for a long time, and it would make him feel abandoned to be in an empty room like that. Then, quietly, almost whispering, as if wanting Gregor, whose whereabouts she did not know, to hear not even the tone of her voice, as she was convinced that he did not understand her words, she added, and by taking all the furniture away, won't it seem like we're showing that we've given up all hope of improvement and we're abandoning him to cope for himself? I think it'd be best to leave the room exactly the way it was before, so that when Gregor comes back to us again, he'll find everything unchanged, and he'll be able to forget the time in between all the easier. Hearing these words from his mother made Gregor realize that the lack of any direct human communication along with the monotonous life led by the family during these two months, must have made him confused. He could think of no other way of explaining to himself why he had seriously wanted his room emptied out. Had he really wanted to transform his room into a cave, a warm room fitted out with nice furniture he had inherited? That would have let him crawl around, unimpeded, in any direction, but it would have also let him quickly forget his past when he had still been human. He had come very close to forgetting, and it had only been the voice of his mother, unheard for so long, that had shaken him out of it. Nothing should be removed. Everything had to stay. He could not do without the good influence the furniture had on his condition, and if the furniture made it difficult for him to crawl about mindlessly, that was not a loss, but a great advantage. His sister, unfortunately, did not agree. She had become used to the idea not without reason, that she was Gregor's spokesman to his parents about things that concerned him. This meant that his mother's advice now was sufficient reason for her to insist on removing not only the chest of drawers and the desk, as she had thought at first, but all the furniture apart from the all-important couch. It was more than childish perversity, of course, or the unexpected confidence she had recently acquired that made her insist she had indeed noticed that Gregor needed a lot of room to crawl about in, whereas furniture, as far as anyone could see, was of no use to him at all. Girls of that age, though, do become enthusiastic about things they feel they must get their way whenever they can. Perhaps this was what tempted Greta to make Gregor's situation even more shocking than it was so that she could do even more for him. Greta would probably be the only one who would dare enter a room dominated by Gregor crawling about the bare walls by himself. So she refused to let her mother dissuade her. Gregor's mother already looked uneasy in the room. She soon stopped speaking and helped Gregor's sister to get the chest of drawers out with what strength she had. The chest of drawers was something that Gregor could do without if he had to, but the writing desk had to stay. Hardly had the two women pushed the chest of drawers, groaning, out of the room, than Gregor poked his head out from under the couch to see what he could do about it. He meant to be as careful and considerate as he could, but, unfortunately, 
It was his mother who came back first, while Greta, in the next room, had her arms around the chest, pushing and pulling at it from side to side by herself without, of course, moving it an inch. His mother was not used to the sight of Gregor. He might have made her ill, so Gregor hurried backwards to the far end of the couch. In his startlement, though, he was not able to prevent the sheet at its front from moving a little. It was enough to attract his mother's attention. She stood very still, remained there a moment, and then went back out to Greta. Gregor kept trying to assure himself that nothing unusual was happening. It was just a few pieces of furniture being moved, after all. But he soon had to admit that the women going to and fro, their little calls to each other, the scraping of the furniture on the floor, all these things made him feel as if he were being assailed from all sides. With his head and legs pulled in against him and his body pressed to the floor, he was forced to admit to himself that he could not stand all of this much longer. They were emptying out his room, taking away everything that was dear to him. They had already taken out the chest containing his fret saw and other tools. Now they threatened to remove the writing desk with its place clearly worn into the floor, the desk where he had done his homework as a business trainee at high school, even while he had been in infant school, he really could not wait any longer to see whether the two women's intentions were good. He had nearly forgotten they were there anyway, as they were now too tired to say anything while they worked, and he could only hear their feet as they stepped heavily on the floor. So, while the women were leant against the desk in the other room, catching their breath, he sallied out, changed direction four times, not knowing what he should save first before his attention was suddenly caught by the picture on the wall, which was already denuded of everything else that had been on it, of the lady dressed in copious fur. He hurried up onto the picture and pressed himself against its glass. It held him firmly and felt good on his hot belly. This picture, at least, now totally covered by Gregor, would certainly be taken away by no one. He turned his head back to face the door into the living room so that he could watch the women when they came back. They had not allowed themselves a long rest and came back quite soon. Greta had put her arm around her mother and was nearly carrying her. "'What shall we take now, then?' Greta said and looked around. Her eyes met those of Gregor's on the wall. Perhaps only because her mother was there, she remained calm bent her face to her so that she could not look around, and said, albeit hurriedly and with a tremor in her voice, Come on, let's go back to the living room for a little while. Gregor could see what Greta had in mind. She wanted to take her mother somewhere safe and then chase him down from the wall. Well, she could certainly try it. He sat unyielding on his picture. He would rather jump at Greta's face. But Greta's words had made his mother quite worried, she stepped to one side, saw the enormous brown patch against the flowers of the wallpaper, and before she even realized it was Gregor that she saw, she screamed, Oh God! Oh God! Arms outstretched, she fell onto the couch as if she had given up everything and stayed there, immobile. Gregor! shouted his sister, glowering at him and shaking her fist. That was the first word she had spoken to him directly since his transformation. She ran into the other room to fetch some kind of smelling salts to bring her mother out of her faint. Gregor wanted to help, too. He could save his picture later. Although he stuck fast to the glass and had to pull himself off by force, then he, too, ran into the next room, as if he could advise his sister like the old days. But he had to just stand behind her doing nothing. 
She was looking into various bottles. He startled her when she turned around. A bottle fell to the ground and broke. A splinter cut Gregor's face. Some kind of caustic medicine splashed all over him. Now, without delaying any longer, Greta took hold of all the bottles she could and ran with them into her mother. She slammed the door shut with her foot. So now Gregor was shut out from his mother, who, because of him, might be near death. He could not open the door if he did not want to chase his sister away, and she had to stay with his mother. There was nothing for him to do but wait, and, oppressed with anxiety and self-reproach, he began to crawl about. He crawled over everything, walls, furniture, ceiling, and finally, in his confusion, as the whole room began to spin around him, he fell down into the middle of the dinner table. He lay there for a while, numb and immobile. All around him it was quiet. Maybe that was a good sign. Then there was someone at the door. The maid, of course, had locked herself in the kitchen so that Greta would have to go and answer it. His father had arrived home. What's happened? were his first words. Greta's appearance must have made everything clear to him. She answered him with a subdued voice and openly pressed her face into his chest. Mother's fainted, but she's better now. Gregor got out. Just as I expected, said his father. Just as I always said. But you woman wouldn't listen, would you? It was clear to Gregor that Greta had not said enough and that his father took to mean that something bad had happened and that he was responsible for some act of violence. That meant Gregor would now have to try to calm his father, as he did not have time to explain things to him, even if that had been possible. So he fled to the door of his room and pressed himself against it so that his father, when he came in from the hall, could see straight away that Gregor had the best intentions and would go back into his room without delay, that it would not be necessary to drive him back, but that they had only to open the door and he would disappear. His father, though, was not in the mood to notice subtleties like that. Ah, he shouted as he came in, sounding as if he were both angry and glad at the same time. Gregor drew his head back from the door and lifted it towards his father. He really had not imagined his father the way he stood there now. Of late, with his new habit of crawling about, he had neglected to pay attention to what was going on in the rest of the flat the way he had done before. He really ought to have expected things to have changed. But still, still, was that really his father? The same tired man as used to be laying there entombed in his bed when Gregor came back from his business trips, who would receive him sitting in the armchair in his nightgown when he came back in the evenings, who was hardly even able to stand up at a sign of his pleasure, would just raise his arms, and who, on the couple of times a year when they went for a walk together on a Sunday or a public holiday, wrapped up tightly in his overcoat between Gregor and his mother, would always labor his way forward a little more slowly than them, who were already walking slowly for his sake, who would place his stick down carefully and, if he wanted to say something, would invariably stop and gather his companions around him. He was standing up straight enough now, dressed in a smart blue uniform with gold buttons, the sort worn by employees at the banking institute. Above the high, stiff collar of the coat, his strong double chin emerged under the bushy eyebrows, his piercing dark eyes looked out fresh and alert. His normally unkempt white hair was combed down painfully close to the scalp. He took his cap with its gold monogram from probably some bank and threw it in an arc right across the room onto the sofa, 
put his hands in his trouser pockets, pushing back the bottom of his long uniform coat, and, with a look of determination, walked towards Gregor. He probably did not even know himself what he had in mind, but nonetheless lifted his feet unusually high. Gregor was amazed at the enormous size of the soles of his boots, but wasted no time with that. He knew full well, right from the first day of his new life, that his father thought it was necessary to always be extremely strict with him. And so he ran up to his father, stopped when his father stopped, scurried forward again when he moved even slightly. In this way, they went around the room several times without anything decisive happening, without even giving the impression of a chase as everything went so slowly. Gregor remained all this time on the floor, largely because he feared his father might see it as especially provoking if he fled onto the wall or the ceiling. Whatever he did, Gregor had to admit that he certainly would not be able to keep up this running about for long, as for each step his father took, he had to carry out countless movements. He became noticeably short of breath. Even in his earlier life, his lungs had not been very reliable. Now, as he lurched about in his efforts to muster all the strength he could for running, he could hardly keep his eyes open. His thoughts became too slow for him to think of any other way of saving himself than running. He almost forgot that the walls were there for him to use, although, here, they were concealed behind carefully carved furniture full of notches and protrusions, then, right beside him, lightly tossed, something flew down and rolled in front of him. It was an apple. Then another one immediately flew at him. Gregor froze in shock. There was no longer any point in running, as his father had decided to bombard him. He had filled his pockets with the fruit from the bowl on the sideboard, and now, without even taking the time for careful aim, threw one apple after another. These little red apples rolled about on the floor, knocking into each other as if they had electric motors. An apple thrown without much force glanced against Gregor's back and slid off, without doing any harm. Another one, however, immediately following it, hit squarely and lodged in his back. Gregor wanted to drag himself away, as if he could remove the surprising, the incredible pain by changing his position but he felt as if nailed to the spot and spread himself out, all of his senses in confusion. The last thing he saw was the door of his room being pulled open. His sister was screaming. His mother ran out in front of her in her blouse, as his sister had taken off some of her clothes after she had fainted to make it easier for her to breathe. She ran to his father, her skirts unfastened and sliding one after another to the ground. Stumbling over the skirt, she pushed herself to his father, her arms around him, uniting herself with him totally. Now Gregor lost his ability to see anything, her hands behind his father's head begging him to spare Gregor's life. That was Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, Part 2, as read by Tales to Terrify's own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked, probably uncomfortably, close to the third planet. Surprisingly, they have not yet been discovered. They are very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology to communicate, even in this limited fashion. Any communication can be directed to www.theboojum.org Thank you, Seth. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. 
Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.